Welcome to the Jesus Christ, Our Savior and Redeemer podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums that testify of Christ's teachings, His life, ministry, and mission, and His sacred atonement. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. The other day while walking through the Wilkinson Center, on my way to the Cougar Eat, I noticed the windows of the YSERV office, and I saw where students had turned the name YSERV into a question. Using colorful markers, students had covered all the windows with responses as to why they serve. I was intrigued and stopped to read them. A few of the answers to why serve were humorous or just incredibly honest, such as, because I usually get refreshments, to get dates, women, and because when you are in the service of your fellow man, you are closer to the food. <laughs> but most, ser- most offered serious reflections, such as, because I love my Heavenly Father, because the gospel is delicious to me, and because I want to put more good into a troubled world. As I continued to read, I realized that there were lots of reasons as to why I serve. I pondered some of the listed reasons and thought of my own motives for serving and wondered if perhaps my service could use some refining at times. Well, if the intent of the good people in the Why Serve office was to get us thinking more about service, it worked on me. What began as a simple attempt to get a salad at the Cougar Eat has turned into weeks of thinking on this topic and now a devotional talk. So this morning, I would like to write on that window, so to speak, and share with you some of my thoughts on why Serb. I would like to begin by quickly examining some primary reasons for serving. Elder Dallin H. Oaks has made the task easy for me. In a conference address given when I was a student, he introduced reasons why people serve in ascending order from lesser to greater. The first and lowest reason is hope of earthly rewards, where our service is focused on receiving honor, praise, or recognition. Next is good companionship, which is centered on social benefits. Both of these reasons, he notes, are self-serving. Moving upward along the continuum is the fear of punishment, a concern for what will happen to us if we don't faithfully serve. Next is serving out of duty or loyalty a motive that's commendable and will merit blessings, but still falls short of the ideal. And then there's hope of an eternal reward, a powerful source of motivation, but not quite there yet. So, have any of you, have any of these reasons ever found their way into your service? Admittedly, they have to mine. Elder Oaks then reminds us of the highest reason, the more excellent way, which is charity, the pure love of Christ, the greatest of all virtues. He explains, it is not enough to serve God with all of our might and strength. He who looks into our hearts and knows our minds demands more than this. In order to stand blameless before God at the last day, we must also serve him with all our heart and mind, close quote. So if we hunted down another set of windows on campus to write, we might pose this question, why serve out of charity? Before exploring the question, I'd like to just take quickly a moment to review what this virtue is and how it's developed. 
Mormon explains that charity is the pure love of Christ, that it suffereth long, it's kind, envieth not, is not puffed up, not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and endureth all things. We know that charity encompasses all godly virtues. It's not merely a kindly act. It is something we become. And this process of developing charity begins with a sincere, heartfelt desire. That desire grows, and that desire leads and grows out of a study of the life of Jesus Christ and a commitment to follow him. We learn that prayer also is critical in developing charity because charity is a divine gift that is bestowed upon us. Mormon teaches, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart that ye may be filled with this love which he has bestowed upon all who are true followers of his Son, Jesus Christ, that you may become the sons of God, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, that we may have this hope, that we may be purified as he is pure. Now on to the question, why serve out of charity? In offering my own answer, I'd like to start with a story. While living in Tucson, Arizona, my wife Colette and I were watching the local news one Saturday night when we heard the story of an eight-year-old boy who had earlier that morning wandered from a campground south of Tucson and failed to return. The terrain into which he wandered included mountains, gullies, foothills, covered in desert vegetation, much of it dense, making the search very difficult. The boy had now spent a hot day and was about to spend a cold night alone in the desert. Colette and I thought of the parents, of the unimaginable anguish they must be feeling. We also considered the young boy alone, cold in the desert. We thought of our own young children and couldn't imagine how they would feel if they were, if, how we would feel if they were lost. Just before midnight, the phone rang. Brother Collister, this is the bishop. Did you hear the news about the lost boy? I confirmed I had. The boy is in our stake, he said. He was on a father and son's outing, and early this morning he got separated from a group of older boys who were exploring a short distance from the camp. People have been searching since then, but he is still lost. Would you meet in the morning at my house to help in the search? They need more volunteers. Very early the next morning, before the sun rose, a large group of us gathered at the bishop's home and quickly set out in vans to the search site. As we drove into the foothills and neared the campground, I saw cars leaving, carrying volunteers who had already spent a long day and a night searching the desert. The boy's father, I later learned, was not aware that replacements were on the way. And with many volunteers returning home to eat and sleep, he wondered if there would be enough volunteers to cover the expanding search area that now extended for miles in all directions. But when he saw our large caravan pull into the parking lot, filled with volunteers, he was overcome with emotion. I remember seeing him cover his face in his hands and cry at the sight of so many people coming to search for his son. The leader of the search and rescue, a large burly man with a thick beard, quickly organized us into small teams and assigned us search areas on a map that lay across the hood of his car. We felt the urgency of the rescue as he explained that 24 hours had passed since the boy wandered from camp. 
that the boy had already gone through a very hot day and a cold night, that the search area was immense and that the desert terrain was rugged. I was on the last team to receive an assignment. And while waiting, I watched the boy's father. I saw his anguish. I could only imagine the overwhelming pain and concern he was feeling. I listened as he expressed gratitude to the departing teams as they set out into the desert. You couldn't help but feel feel a love for this good father and his lost son. As I stood next to the leader, I suddenly heard the crackle of his radio. We then heard an excited voice from one of the search teams exclaim, We found him. We found him. He's okay. The leader, who had shown great control up to this point, now jumped in the air for joy and actually started to cry. His voice was choked with emotion as he called out to the boy's father and to all present, they found him. The leader called for all the search parties to return to the campground and then quickly drove off with the joyful father to pick up the son. I then watched a beautiful scene unfold. Across the desert and over the hills, Largely hidden from view up to that point came the search parties. They were numerous. I watched them materialize from hills, gullies, canyons, and the valley below. Some volunteers looked very tired and worn, having searched since the beginning, but full of joy at the news. Soon the vehicle carrying the son and his father arrived back in camp. I could not hold back the tears when the father emerged from the car holding his son. The son's face was buried in his father's neck as he clung tightly to him. A large group of volunteers quickly crowded around to cherish the sight of the father and his son reunited. The state president asked for all news cameras to be turned off and hats removed while he offered a prayer of gratitude. The image of the father holding his son, encircled by an army of volunteers with heads bowed, is one of the sweetest memories of my life. Now, there are many parallels from this experience that I might highlight, such as the urgency of these last days and searching for the lost sheep, the sacrifice of such eff- that such efforts entail, the persistence required. But it was the image of the Father during that search and rescue that has remained most salient in my memory and that I would like to focus on. That morning, I received a small glimpse into what our Heavenly Father must feel as he looks out and sees many of his children struggling and wandering across a rapidly darkening, spiritually hostile landscape. For him who is perfect in love and compassion, whose creations are continually before his eyes, the pain and anguish he must feel is hard to imagine. I think of the words to the hymn, Dear to the heart of the shepherd, dear are the ninety and nine, dear are the sheep that have wandered out in the desert to pine. Hark, he is earnestly calling, tenderly pleading today. Will you not seek for my lost ones, offer my shelter astray? Out in the desert they wander, hungry and helpless and cold. Off to the rescue he hastens, bringing them back to the fold. Enoch was given a similar perspective on a far grander scale than mine. The Lord showed him in vision all the inhabitants of the earth, and he witnessed the disturbing spread of Satan's power. As he covered the world, he saw Satan and his angels laughing and rejoicing in their success at enticing God's children into darkening and forbidden lands. Then Enoch's perspective was suddenly and forever changed. 
he saw something that absolutely astonished him. He saw God weeping. How is it that thou canst weep? Seeing thou art holy, and from all eternity to all eternity, he asks, unable to hide his surprise. Thou art just, thou art merciful and kind forever, and mercy shall go before thy face and have no end. How is it thou canst weep? In answer to Enoch's question, the Lord described the future suffering of his disobedient and unrepentant children and says, Wherefore should not the heavens weep, seeing these shall suffer? Enoch learns that God feels anguish and pain and sorrow for his wandering and suffering children. Enoch witnesses the great depths of God's love and compassion for each and every one of us, not just on some general abstract level, but on an individual, intimate, and personal level. His love and concern and interest in us are beyond our comprehension. That morning, I also saw the gratitude of the boy's father for those who so willingly and lovingly sacrificed. I witnessed his great joy at the return of his son. Our Heavenly Father feels these emotions as well, but in a far greater degree. He is ever grateful to those who search, lift, and bless. Those who go out and search for the lost ones or, or those who struggle certainly offer our Heavenly Father some relief from his concern, anguish, and sorrow. And his joy is full in the sheep that return to the fold or for the lambs that are comforted. So, for me, part of the answer to the question, why serve out of charity, is rooted in God's infinite love for his children and his desire that his children experience that love. He accomplishes this in part through his under-shepherds, those who lovingly assist him in his work. When our service springs forth from the wells of charity, we experience God's love as it flows through us to those we serve, and they, in turn, come to feel that love. Let me illustrate with a story. Many years ago, as a freshman at BYU-Hawaii, I was passing through some very difficult life experiences. I was also aware of my imperfections and felt distant from my Heavenly Father. I was not guilty of any egregious sins, but I was not where I wanted to be spiritually. I was much like the boy who, through carelessness, had wandered into the desert. On a particular Sunday, a conference was held on campus presided over by President Spencer W. Kimball. He spoke to a large gathering of saints who had come to hear the prophet. I remember feeling the spirit as he spoke. Following the closing prayer, all arose, and in respectful silence, we watched that great man exit the building. As we filed out, two young Polynesian students I had met at the dorms approached me and invited me to walk up, invited me to walk with them to the Hawaii temple, where they were going to spend the afternoon reading the scriptures. I was a bit surprised at the invitation, not knowing them very well at the time, but I gladly accepted. When we arrived at the temple, we walked to the upper grounds. I didn't have scriptures with me. So as they sat on the grass to read, I walked a short distance away to sit on a stone bench. I cannot remember all I thought and felt that day. It was many years ago. But I remember thinking about my Heavenly Father and how I wanted to draw closer to Him. I started to pray. But as I did, I do remember feeling heavy and discouraged. At that time in my life, I had a hard time envisioning a God full of love and compassion. 
I felt I was praying to someone who was always displeased and disappointed with me and far away. I didn't understand the true nature of my Heavenly Father, but my perspective was about to change. As I sat on the bench, my attention was suddenly drawn to a small group of people excitedly walking toward the entrance of the temple. I looked beyond them and saw, to my great surprise, President Kimball and some local and general church leaders coming out of the temple. They were walking down a sidewalk that led to a gate where cars had just pulled up to carry them to the airport. A half dozen or so people lined the sidewalk, waiting to greet him as he made his way to the awaiting cars. I stood up and apprehensively approached the sidewalk, deciding to remain a short distance away where he, from where he would pass. However irrational it may sound, I was afraid to approach him. I decided that as a prophet, he might be able to peer, to peer into my heart and see my imperfections. I felt that I was in need of greater spirituality and a serious haircut. So I decided to remain what I consider to be a safe distance from the sidewalk. Well, I miscalculated. As he passed by, he looked right at me. I then recorded in my journal what happened next. President Kimball suddenly stopped and turned and headed right for me. The prophet grabbed my hand, gave me a hug, and kissed me on my cheek, and then looked me in the eyes and said, I love you, end of quote. I was overcome with emotion. The only words I was able to get out were, thank you. I felt something in that hug and expression of love. I then watched him through my tears as he climbed into an awaiting car. He looked through the window at us with such pure and loving eyes and waved goodbye as he drove away. I then ran behind the temple and had a good cry. Yes, I felt President Kimball's love for me, but his love pointed to the wellspring from which it flowed. I felt an overpowering, an outpouring of my Heavenly Father's love for me, so real and so clear. The feeling remained with me for a time. President Kimball's act of kindness could have come from the groundskeeper that day because if it had flowed from the fountains of charity, I'm convinced the same results would have followed. Having it come from the prophets certainly made it very special. But what flowed through him and was communicated to me was my Heavenly Father's love. He was reaching out to me through one of his special servants and through two wonderful students through whom the pure love of Christ flowed to me that day. Through that experience and others, I've learned that as we strive to follow the Savior, and as we fervently pray for charity, our service undergoes a remarkable change. We begin to feel his love more keenly for those we serve, and we feel his love for us as we serve, and the outcome can be marvelous. When our Heavenly Father bestows his love upon us, it is not meant to simply pool within us. But as it flows through us to others in Christ-like service, we are transformed. Like a river flowing over rough stones that with time become smooth, polished, and beautiful, his pure love as it flows through us transforms our nature and blesses those we serve. President Kimball once said, My life is like my shoes, to be worn out in service. That same discipleship, defines President Monson's life and so many others that we all come to know. They are Christ-like because they strive to serve 
as he did. Perhaps at times you may feel that God is not aware of you or that you haven't felt his love. I believe that if you will reflect for just a moment on the loving service you receive from others, you will see the workings of the Lord moving in the background. The Lord may move someone to offer a hug, a smile, a kind note, or an invitation. I believe that Heavenly Father is far more involved in those experiences than we may know. Another reason we serve out of charity is because charity can deepen our love for our Heavenly Father and for his children. Robert L. Millett once said, As we live in a manner that allows the Spirit to be with us regularly, we begin to see things as they really are. Our love for God grows as we begin to sense his goodness for us, and we become aware of his involvement in our lives. And as we begin to acknowledge his hand in all that is noble and good and worthy. I remember a few weeks ago feeling weighed down with a heavy matter. I prayed for a time, asking the Lord to lift my spirits. I arose from my knees and went downstairs to the kitchen where my wife Colette was loading the dishwasher. She stopped in the middle of loading, looked up at me, and immediately walked over to give me a hug. When she eventually pulled away, she said, Are you all right? I was surprised at her question, knowing she knew nothing of the difficult matter. She said she felt an impression in that moment to give me a hug. I marveled at a Heavenly Father's kindness and tender mercies that he would prompt my, li- my wife to lift my spirit. He might have lifted my spirit as I, while I was praying, which he sometimes does for us, but instead he chose to work through her. As a result, Colette felt and witnessed his love, as did I, and the experience served to bring her and me even closer together. At times, we're called upon to serve those who at times may make it difficult to love them. The Savior taught, For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? But charity in such moments can soften hearts and heal relationships. I remember on one occasion a frustrated, angry ward member speaking quite sharply and unkindly to a bishop, criticizing his leadership. While I listened, I found my anger rising, feeling his criticism was unfair and inappropriate, for I had such great respect for this bishop and knew of his great sacrifices and able leadership. After the ward member concluded his comments, I was ready to provide a strong defense for the bishop and tell the ward member how I felt about his behavior. But before I could speak, this great bishop, with eyes moist from the stinging rebuke, replied with such genuine love to the member. Thank you for sharing your comments, he said. I know that I have shortcomings, and you have shown me where I can improve. I commit to do better. Now, what can I do to make things better for you? A spirit came into that room, and a change came over the ward member, a visible softening, followed by an apology. The bishop expressed his genuine love for this man, and the meeting came to a close. I remained in the room until the ward member had left, and I was alone with the bishop. I couldn't speak. I was so moved by what I just witnessed. It was charity, pure and sweet. The bishop looked over at me, and he could tell that I was emotional. He asked if I was all right. I couldn't answer for a moment. I then told him that I had just witnessed 
one of the most beautiful Christ-like experiences of my life and thanked him for it. In closing, I want to draw upon Ezekiel's vision in which he sees a millennial temple built in Jerusalem and witnesses waters suddenly bursting forth from the threshold of the temple, flowing eastward to the Dead Sea. Joseph Smith spoke of the literal fulfillment of the future event. Now imagine Ezekiel standing on the bank under a hot Judean sun, looking over this miraculous river in the desert as it flows from the temple and journeys eastward. In the vision, an angel invites Ezekiel to walk with him along the bank a thousand cubits and then wade across the river. As Ezekiel crosses, he notices that the waters reach to his ankles. While this must have offered him some relief from the heat, the Lord never meant for him to have an ankle-deep experience. No, the river offered far more. But to feel more of this river, Ezekiel obediently followed the angel further downriver along the bank. As he progresses another thousand cubits, he's instructed to once more cross the river. This time, the river has risen up to his knees. The pure, clear water flowing through the hot, arid desert valley must have been so refreshing to Ezekiel. Perhaps his desire grows, wanting to experience more of this remarkable river. Another stretch of obediently following the angel, and another crossing, he finds the waters have risen and now reach his waist. Again, he is called to follow, and again he obeys. After walking along the banks for a final thousand cubits, Ezekiel is astonished by what he sees. He records, It was a river that I could not pass over. The rivers were risen, waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. End of quote. Waters to swim in, a river so vast and mighty that it could not be passed over. What an appropriate symbol for the infinite love that flows from our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. But the angel has one more surprise for Ezekiel. He shows him the transforming and miraculous power of this river. Ezekiel sees that everything the waters touch, they bless, heal, and prosper. The desert landscape is literally transformed. It comes alive with an abundance of trees and fruits of all kinds and plants whose leaves contain healing powers. He beholds great fish in the river, drawing people from all around who cast in their nets. To his joy, he then witnesses the pure waters ultimately flowing into the Dead Sea, healing waters forever. Ezekiel concludes, Everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the rivers shall come, shall live. Such transforming and healing powers point to the atonement of Jesus Christ, the ultimate expression of love. My prayer would be that we might desire with all our hearts to swim in such rivers, in such waters, not ankle or knee deep, but experience waters to swim in. This is only possible to the extent that we follow the Savior in faith and obedience and pray with all our hearts that he might bestow his love upon us, that we might feel those living waters of the Spirit, of the pure love that flows to us from our Heavenly Father and his Son. They desire that we direct these waters to others through our Christ-like service. This is why we serve out of charity. The fruits of charity will be a greater desire for the eternal welfare of others, a heart that is quick to forgive and slow to judge, slow to anger, 
that sees the good in others, that is patient and kind and seeks those in needs. I'm grateful for the great shepherds that have blessed my family and me, who have led me to these living waters through Christ-like service. Isn't it exciting to see out over this mortal desert and see so many missionaries, over 88,000 strong, young and old, searching for our Heavenly Father's children to bring them out from the desert to these healing waters. It's inspiring to see so many of you making your way to the temple, lovingly fulfilling callings, doing genealogy, performing simple everyday acts of kindness, a hug, a smile, a compliment, a note, an expression of love. May we strive to do a little better each day. I wish to close with the final verse of the hymn I cited earlier. In response to the Lord's plea, will you not seek for my lost ones? I would pray this might be our answer to our loving Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Green are the pastures inviting, sweet are the waters and still. Lord, we will answer thee gladly. Yes, blessed Master, we will. Make us thy true under shepherds. Give us a love that is deep. Send us out into the desert seeking thy wandering sheep. I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Jesus Christ, Our Savior and Redeemer podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on overcoming adversity by study and by faith. Come follow me, Love and Marriage, and the Prophet Joseph Smith. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.